You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. When was the last time you felt weak? The last time you felt inadequate? The last time that you felt overwhelmed? Well, it was roughly one month ago that I stood before you talking about the death of Lazarus in the book of John, and I ended my sermon with these words, tomorrow is not promised to us. Eighty years is not promised. Every day depends on the Lord. Come to Him. Two days later, I got a call from the doctor to let me know that the growth on my leg that I thought was a pimple or an ingrown hair or something strange like that was actually a rare pink melanoma. Now, it's one thing to say that tomorrow is not promised. It's another thing to wrestle with the finiteness, the weakness of our bodies. Particularly in our modern age where so much of our life, so much of our age is dedicated to promoting not our weakness but our strength, even when we don't feel strong. I grew up uh, with my parents, my mum particularly, She was a good, strong country girl, and she inherited the British stiff upper lip. But the the right response to anything, whether abundance or low, whether highs or valleys, was the same demeanor all the way through. Don't show anybody that you're weak. Particularly for those among us who've grown up in cultures that prioritize either honor gaining honor or avoiding shame. One of the most shameful things that you can do is to be weak. Weakness is to be avoided at all costs. Even in modern internet culture, the amount of times I've sat down with a young person, a young adult, a a teenager, talking about a crisis that's going on, only to see them post on Instagram five hours later, a selfie with with the caption, life is good, hashtag blessed. No one wants to be weak. No one wants to seem weak. No one wants others to think they are weak. No one except Paul. One of the most countercultural things that you'll ever hear Paul say is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. When I am weak, then I am strong. It almost feels like he's written the wrong words down. Paul, when you're strong, that's when you're strong. That's obvious to everyone. All of us would prefer to be strong rather than weak. We'd prefer to be strong in our areas of life. We'd prefer to be able to lift heavy things and to have great families and to be successful in our jobs. No one wants to be weak. Paul, what are you getting at? Well, Paul's whole life, in a sense, is an exercise in weakness. It's easy for us to think of the Apostle Paul, writer of most of the New Testament, as either a grey-haired academic sitting in his ivory towers writing letters to all these different churches or some kind of spiritual super soldier, right? Someone who is so different to us. Yet Paul knows abundantly what it is to be weak. Even just in this book, his weakness is on display again and again and again. This is the opening to his letter. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Paul saying, brothers, sisters, not only did we want to die, we thought we were going to die. That's how weak we were. Three chapters later, when he starts talking about the impact of the gospel in his life, he says this, he describes himself as a clay jar, weak, brittle, easily broken. The treasure of the gospel, that's strong. But me, I'm weak. So that it may be made clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. Paul is weak. He goes on two chapters later. He describes his service of the Lord. We have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. How do we conduct ourselves? With purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In honor, in dishonor in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet always, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul's whole thing is that my life is one that has been marked by weakness. It's not about me. It's all about him. Paul has found something deeply profound in his experience of weakness that he wants to share with this church. It's not about strength. It's actually about weakness. And it's striking that he writes this to the church in Corinth because Corinth is a strong church. It's a wealthy church. It has no lack of resources. It's situated in an influential place. This should be a hub of kingdom activity. This should be a missionary sending place, a gospel enjoying place, a place where people come to know and love Jesus. And yet, this is a church that's constantly beset by turmoil, constantly beset by conflict because they consistently prioritize power over everything else. Who is powerful? Who is the most powerful? And in fact, this is the reason for the letter of 2 Corinthians is written. And he's trying to challenge and contrast himself against a group of men who have infiltrated the church. They're calling themselves, or at least Paul calls them, super apostles. Not just normal apostles. Now, these are super apostles, people who boast in their achievements, in their accomplishments, in their spiritual things that they do. These are the best of the best, the most powerful you could ever find. And Paul wants to cut them down. He's saying, you've missed something profound. You've missed the heart of the gospel. And so he writes this letter to them. Second Corinthians is full of weakness, but I think the whole chapter, the whole book of Second Corinthians could be summarized in this chapter. 
So Paul writes to them, he says, It's necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God, God does. God knows. I know, that <coughs> I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Again, God knows was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of of such a one I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. But if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me. What on earth is going on in this passage? Who is Paul talking about? What is the third heaven? Why has he included this? You might have read this this week or even this morning as we read it out loud and going, what on earth is Paul talking about? But it's, it's actually not as complicated as it first seems. Three questions help us work out. Who is Paul talking about? What is the third heaven and why is he included it? Well, who is not that hard actually because Paul's talking about himself. He's put himself in the third person because his whole point is that you don't find power, you don't find boasting in your spiritual experiences. He's writing to contrasting himself against these super apostles who seem to do the miraculous and say, that's where my power comes from, that's where my authority comes from. And Paul is saying, guys, I have done and seen things that you couldn't even imagine. And yet that is not the cause for my boasting. Paul's so wanting to humble himself that he's not even willing to attach his name. He barely mentions this thing that has happened in passing. But you might very well ask, what on earth are the third heavens? And it's actually, we we actually understand this a bit better than we might think. Because when we think of heaven, we think of the place where God is. That's our instant line. Heaven is where God is. God is in the heavens. And the Israelites will go, you're absolutely right. Except we would call that the third heaven. Because heaven is a way for them of describing different aspects of God's creation, different levels of God's creation. And so we use this same language today. When we talk about the heavens... We could be talking about the sky that we see. When we talk about the heavens, we could be talking about the stars. Or we could be talking about the place where God is. Well, the Israelite culture would do the same thing. They would call the first heaven the sky around them. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, The land that you're going to possess uh, is a land of hills and valleys which drink water by the rain from heaven. Is he playing from the very direct dwelling place of God? No, he's saying from the, the atmosphere, the clouds around. That's the first level of heaven. Well, the psalm says, when I look at your heavens, what is that? The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've established, the vast heavens around us. That's the second level of heaven. And the third level is the very dwelling place of God. What Paul is saying is, I had an experience, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But whatever happened, I was brought up into the very dwelling place of God. I was with God. And we might ask the question, well, why is Paul talking about this? Why is Paul using this coded language? I'm not boasting, yet I'm boasting. He's trying to get them to understand something, that power and authority 
as a Christian doesn't come from our spiritual experiences. It comes from the Lord. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've experienced. Everything we have comes from His hand. Paul barely mentions this in passing. It's striking, isn't it? Paul would be well within his rights to say, boys, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. I've planted more churches than anybody. I speak in tongues more than anybody. I've had an experience of the risen Lord Jesus. I've been, I've been brought up into the very presence of the Lord. I think you should listen to me. Except he doesn't. If this happened in our modern culture, there would be books and articles and podcasts and sermon series written, but Paul doesn't do any of those things because he knows that if that's what happens, that's what he boasts in, much will be made of Paul and not much will be made of Jesus. He knows that it would actually be detrimental to the mission of making much of Jesus. So he barely mentions it. But what does he mention? He mentions his weakness. Even considering the exceptional character of the revelations, therefore to keep me from being too elated or proud, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. (coughs) So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weakness, I am content with insult, I am content with hardship, I am content with persecution, I am content with calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Paul doesn't boast in this ecstatic experience. No, he boasts in his weakness. He boasts of this thorn in the flesh. Now, 2,000 years of church discussion about what particularly the thorn in the flesh might be has failed to provide the clarity needed. Some have suggested that perhaps Paul is talking about a medical condition, particularly the best guess might be that he has a degenerative eye condition. So in the book of Galatians, he describes himself writing in such big letters as if he can't see the small ones. But that would be a guess. Perhaps Paul is talking about a great opposition that he's experiencing in the churches. Perhaps he's talking about a particular individual that he knows about. Perhaps Paul is describing the work of Satan tormenting him. Perhaps he's talking about an ongoing mental health condition. Perhaps he's talking about something we can't even fathom. In some ways, I think it's kind of a helpful thing that we don't know. Because all of us, at some level, experience this kind of experience. All of us have a thought. All of us have this thing that we go back to again and again and again. We might have even experienced it this week. Lord, this again? Back here again? This experience again? Paul's experience was an ongoing, besetting experience of being humbled, of experiencing weakness. And you know what I find striking about this is this is what happened after his apex spiritual experience. So often we think of our thorn in the flesh as the result or the, uh, as God um, punishing us for failing to obey him. Paul had his thorn in the flesh given after 
He was drawn up into the very presence of God. He wasn't punishing him, he was helping him. And I find that so incredibly encouraging because all of us have a thorn in the flesh. It will be different for each of us. My thorn in the flesh over the past 33 years has been constant medical problems. So in 33 years, I've been diagnosed with asthma, with ADHD, with allergies, with chronic fatigue syndrome, with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, with ulcerative colitis and now skin cancer. And the constant thing has been, is not, this week it wasn't skin cancer, God, it was like, it was this again. We're back here again, Lord. This prayer again, Lord. Heal me again, Lord. Right back in the same place again. And I've got two deeply held convictions. One is that I believe utterly that God will heal me, either through medical intervention, either through divine intervention, or in eternity when I receive my resurrection body. And I believe that my waiting that this thorn in my flesh of waiting for healing that doesn't yet come has been a blessing to my spiritual development, has conformed me closer to the image of Christ, and has meant that I have been a more helpful Christian to those around me than if I had never experienced good health. Now, I'm not saying that this is an enjoyable experience. Paul is not saying that this is an enjoyable experience. He cries out three times, Lord, take this from me. Same amount of times as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this from me. And yet God's response, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I would much prefer to be strong. I would much prefer to be in perfect health. I would much prefer to be always kind and always caring and always wise and always smart and to be the best dad that I could possibly be and to be a better pastor for all of you. But I also know that that would be a spiritually dangerous place for me if I was strong all the time. Because you know what happens when we feel like we're strong? We feel like we don't need God. When we feel like we're strong, we're so quick to abandon the God who strengthens and encourages and holds us. Even just, just check your last week, your last seven days. Have you had a deep need for God? Have you felt in your prayer life, God, I absolutely, utterly need you? For so many of us, when we feel like we're strong, God's the first one that leaves our mind. We look back over our weeks and we feel like our prayers have either been lacking or been absent. We feel like our reading of God's Word hasn't felt like an utter need to feed and feast on His Word, but it's felt like a chore. We don't need other Christians. In fact, they're an impediment to us. They're not a blessing from God, but a burden. In fact, we can judge them because we're actually quite strong. We're way better than they are. In fact, we feel like the laws and rules that come from God, we can accomplish on our own strength. But when we are weak, these graces that God gives us come alive. When we are weak, it's interesting how our prayer life becomes rich. 
when we are weak. It's interesting how the Word of God comes alive to us. The promise of God surround us and fill us and strengthen us when we're weak. It's funny how desperately we need each other. When we're weak, how important, how beautiful the grace of God becomes to us. When we are weak, we find that we are strong. And this strength isn't automatic. It's not something that's bestowed upon us just by virtue of being weak. It's that weakness creates the very environment that we come to that place that says, God, I can't do this. I'm done. I've had enough. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the resources. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have whatever I need. I'm not strong. I'm weak. God, I need you. And God in his mercy gives us not the strength that we need, but his strength. The resurrected Lord Jesus, the King of kings, comes to us in his strength. Because the truth all along is that it's not about us and our power and our strength. It's all about him. He has strength that we can't even imagine. There's a beautiful section in verse 9. It's the kind of thing that we might skip over because the big headline quotes are around it. The last line, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That line, may dwell in me, that is a particularly profound word that we can find two other times. One in Exodus 30, uh, uh, 40 and one in John 1. Both times describing God's presence with his people. So in Exodus 40, it says the cloud, that is the cloud of God's glory, covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle is God's meeting place, the place of God's presence with the Israelites. This is the place where God is. He dwelt with them. In fact, the literal translation would be God pitched his tent with them. And John 1 the Word, that's Jesus, became fleshed and lived among us. Again, a literal translation, the Word became fleshed and pitched His tent with us. What Paul is saying is that in our weakness, God pitches His tent with us. It's so easy to think that God blesses those who are strong. To God blesses those who already pray six times a day and who wake up early at five in the morning and start fasting for 70 hours. That's who God blesses. Those who've known their Bibles as soon as they came out of the womb. Those who go to church every single Sunday. But do you know who God blesses? God blesses those who are weak and say, God, I can't do this, but you can. God blesses those who know they don't have enough and say, God, I need you. That's who God pitches his tent with. So this morning, if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling wholly inadequate for whatever you're going through, friend, you're in a beautiful place because that is the place where you can cry out to God and say, God, I need you. Be who you are. Be who your promises declare you to be. Be who I need. You are all I need, Lord. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong, not because I am strong, but because you are above all other things. So I'm going to leave just a moment of reflection for you to look over your past week and consider, have you felt a deep need for God? Have you felt the need of His presence? Have you felt the need to be close to Him? Reflect on whether you're in a precarious position, thinking yourself strong when actually you're weak. Or do you have a deep and abundant need for Him? Use the time to cry out to God. And then after that, I'm going to pray for us. So let's just have a moment of reflection. God, we are weak, but you are not. God, we are inadequate, but you are not. God, we often are overwhelmed, but you are not. Lord, for those of us who feel strong, who present strength to others, may you reveal to us all the ways in which we are weak and desperately need you. May you provide for us a thorn in the flesh to humble us so that we would depend upon you, so that we would see that the power comes not from ourselves but from your hand. God, make much of yourself in our life. God, for those of us who feel inadequate, those of us who feel weak, may you draw us into yourself. Help us see how adequate you are, how strong you are, how beautiful you are, how capable you are. God, may our trust and dependence upon you grow not in line with our strength and confidence in ourselves, but with what we know about you. Lord, when we are weak, we are strong. So make us weak so that we might be strong only in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.